Please turn to Hebrews chapter 5 for this morning's text. It's on page 1423 in the Bibles in the pew in front of you. Verses 4 through 10. And no one takes the honor to himself. The honor being spoken of is that of the high priest. But receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Just as he says also in another passage, Thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. I want to hang the insights about Jesus Christ today on three words, and the words are dignity, eternity, and purity. And I know that uh, they're big words for children, and almost no children are in this room right now, but I'm going to tell you what I said to the children in the first hour because what I have found is that most of the time when I address the children, that's the time the adults understand me best. And so uh, what I said to them was that uh, wise children say when they hear a big word, Pastor John sure uses some big words, and I don't understand them all the time, but I'm glad Pastor Don just doesn't use words that I understand because then he would have to leave out some important things in the Bible and I wouldn't grow as much in my understanding. That's what wise children say. However, since there are always words that people don't understand and we need to work at communication, I will explain the meaning of dignity, eternity, and purity. But first... Let me put on the table the main point of this text. It's in verse 9. You can look at it. As I understand the flow of the argument in verses 4 to 10, verse 9 is the main point where it says, He, that is Christ, became to all those who obey him the source of an eternal salvation. Christ has become... The source of an eternal salvation. Salvation from sin and guilt and condemnation and death and hell and Satan and life of meaningless labor. Christ is the source of everlasting or eternal salvation. It will never, ever cease. We are now in Christ and will be forever saved from all these destructive forces. Now, that's the main point in the chapter or in the section that we're looking at. Everything else in this section is designed to show how Christ became the source of eternal salvation. 
And I think everything else can be summed up under the dignity that Christ has as son, the eternity that he has in the order of Melchizedek, and the purity that he has coming through the crucible of suffering. So let's talk about these three words. Definition of dignity. Dignity means worthiness of honor. And the best way to get it across to kids and adults is to say that dogs have more dignity than ants do. And the proof of that is that stores sell ant poison and not dog poison. And if you put out ant poison in your house, nobody will raise an eyebrow. If you kill all the dogs in your neighborhood, you'll be in big trouble. Because dogs have more dignity than ants do. And children have more dignity than dogs do because there are humane society trucks that go around when they're called picking up stray, mangy, bothersome dogs. And if they can't find a home for them, they put them to sleep. But nobody is allowed to do that to kids. And you know what I thought as soon as I wrote that yesterday. Unless they're unborn or partially born. But the point remains. Children have more dignity than dogs. And God has more dignity than humans, children or adults. Because God created us, he sustains us, And he is infinitely superior to us in every category. And therefore, God is infinitely dignified or worthy of honor. So that's what I mean by dignity, worthiness of honor. Here's what I mean by eternity. You have eternity if you didn't have a beginning and won't have an ending. If you exist now and you're going to stop existing, you don't have eternity. If you didn't exist and then came into being like everything but God, you don't have eternity. If you never had a beginning and never have an ending, you have eternity. And we'll see that one of the big issues in this text is this Melchizedek thing. What is that? And it has to do with eternity. And the last word is purity, and we all know what that is. Unsoiled, not dirty, or in Jesus' case, when he walked through the flame of affliction, he did not yield to the filth of self-pity or unbelief or bitterness or vengeance. He came through like gold because he is pure, pure gold. So those are my three words. Dignity of the son. Eternity of the priesthood, according to the order of Melchizedek and purity through the crucible of suffering. So the main point of the text is verse nine. Christ has become for us. The source of eternal, never ending Salvation from sin and guilt and shame and death and hell and Satan. And the way he has become 
the source of eternal salvation is by virtue of his dignity as the son, his eternity as the priest like Melchizedek and his purity in suffering. Now, someone might ask, this is the question that came to my mind as I got to this point in my thinking. Someone might say, well, wait a minute. You're talking about eternal salvation. We love it. It's the most important thing in our lives. But I always thought you'd have to say the death of Jesus is what obtained for us our eternal salvation. And that's the way he became the source of eternal salvation. You haven't even mentioned the death of Jesus. You're just talking about dignity and eternity and purity. Why are you talking about that and not the death of Jesus? And here are three answers to that question. Number one, that's what the text is talking about. Even though I love theology, and I have a theology, I have a system. It's called Christian hedonism. And I like things to fit into my system. My main task as a pastor is to preach texts. And to be held accountable by the saints to say what the texts say. First, if they fit, I'm happy. If they don't fit, the system better get adjusted. But the main task is you say what texts say. And if I end the sermon and this text hasn't had a fair hearing, then you have a right to send me a note and say, how come you're preaching your theology and not texts? The word of God, not John Piper's theology. If those two don't correspond, the theology is the worst for it. So that's the first reason. The text doesn't even mention the death of Jesus, which is all important, but you don't say everything in every text. It does talk about the dignity of the Son and the eternity of the Son and the purity of the Son through suffering in order that he might become the source of eternal salvation, and we'll see how that relates. Here's the second reason why I'm doing it this way. You need to know, Christian, and anybody on the quest for God, you need to know why Jesus is a suitable Savior to die. We all love the death of Christ. It is our death. It is our life. It is our forgiveness, our acceptance, our foundation. It's everything to us. But you got to know why he was a suitable Savior. And if you don't know why he's a suitable Savior, then you're not going to be as confident in his salvation. And confidence is right at the heart of what this book, Hebrews, is about. Because if you have more confidence in the effectiveness of the priestly dying work of Christ for your sins, if you have more confidence... You know what's going to happen? When you get over to chapter 10, 11, 12, and 13, and you start reading these radical calls to laying down your life kind of sacrificial obedience, you'll be able to do it. But if your confidence is small that your sin problem is solved, or that you're not really accepted with God, or that he's not on your side, and that maybe the Savior who died was not a sufficiently dignified Savior to carry the weight of what this death carries then you're going to be in trouble without confidence. And the third reason for talking about these three things, dignity, eternity, and purity, is that without knowing Jesus, you can't have a personal relationship with him. 
Sometimes I think we uh, have a kind of a cloudy, airy, subjective notion of how to relate to Jesus as a person. We say, oh, I want to have a personal relationship. Christ, who's alive, give it to me, Lord. Make it happen. When in fact, it's there are some ways to do this. Namely, you can't have a relationship with somebody you don't know. And the Bible and texts like this are written so that you can know the dignity of the Son, the eternity of the Son. And especially this text focuses on the purity of the tortured Son. And the way a relationship happens is that you listen and you watch and you see where he's coming from and where he's going and what qualities he has and how strong he is and how long he lasts and how he responded to suffering and what he said and how he prayed and what he did in the midst of crisis. And you get to know him so that you can talk to him and you listen to him. I get up Sunday mornings real early to get my heart ready to do this. And I say to the Lord, as I open my Bible, you, living God, speak. Because if you don't speak, I can't speak. If you don't assure me that I belong to you, if you don't assure me this morning that my sins are forgiven, if you don't establish my call again to the ministry of the word this morning and address me as a living person and relate to me in this little corner of my study, I cannot and will not Go into that pulpit. And so I am very, very serious about the way I read the Bible. And I read it and I am on the search for specific address from God. And this morning, there are several, but I'll just mention one. The Lord said to John Piper, the Lord said, the living Lord said, this is no, this is no subjective hocus pocus. The living Lord said to John Piper, my steadfast love will not depart from you. And my covenant of peace I will not remove from you. The Lord said that to me this morning. If you want to read it, it's in Isaiah 54.10. But he said that to me, and that's why I'm here. I have a relationship with God. He talks to me in the Bible very powerfully. Because in Jesus Christ, you can know that what he addresses to his covenant people, he addresses to you. You don't have to shut your Bible and ask for some Vibrations, all the vibrations you want will come out of the Bible if the Holy Spirit is on you and on that reading of the Bible. So the third reason I'm talking about these things is because when I study for a sermon, I get so jealous for you. I say, oh, everybody should do this. Everybody should preach. 
Everybody should teach. Everybody should share. Because when you struggle and you wrestle Friday and Saturday with about seven verses, you meet Him. You meet Him. And He speaks and you know Him and you you relate to Him. I, I called Noel into the study yesterday about three in the afternoon. I was really struggling because I don't know if you... I diagrammed these verses. How many did sentence diagramming in high school? Raise your hand. Not as many as should have. (laughs) Poor school systems. Well, all we did in the seventh grade was diagram sentences. Well, I diagrammed them in Greek because verses five through ten are one sentence in Greek. And it is incredibly complex. It is just backward and forward and the word order is all over the place. And I'm trying to figure out now what's the main thing here and how do these pieces fit together? And it filled a whole sheet and it just looked like a maze. And I called Noel and said, you want to see tomorrow's text? And I held up this Greek diagramming. She said, oh, neat. I said, every word needs a sermon. Now I'm going to take 50 of these words and put them in one sermon. Which meant that I was on my face saying, God, I don't know which ones to choose. I could preach a sermon on every word in this text. This text could go for one year. What am I going to do? And you wait and you trust that having prayed and having worked as hard as you know how to work to determine the structure of the thought, you make choices and you believe that God is in it. Let's take these words one at a time and quickly fill them up with Christ. First, the word dignity. Let's look at verse 4. No one takes the honor of the priesthood. No one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So the first point here is the office of the priesthood is so dignified. It has so much dignity. Nobody dare say, oh, I'll do it here. I'll be the priest. You can't volunteer to be the priest. God alone reaches down and pulls and chooses and calls into the priesthood whom he will. Now, verse five relates that to Jesus. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but now the next part of this verse is confusing because it doesn't relate to the priesthood. I expected him to say, so Christ did not glorify himself to become a high priest, but God made him a high priest or but God said, this is my high priest. But the the terminology of high priest is dropped in the second half of the verse and instead you get sonship. So it says, but he who said to him, thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. He glorified him in this way. Now, what's going on here? Um, I think the point is this. He's lifting up the high priesthood, that intercessory role that Christ is going to have for the people of God. And he's saying it is a dignified role. It is a high role. And nobody can put themselves into it. Only God can put people into it. And so God, and then instead of saying simply 
put him into it. He says, God has begotten a son. Now, the, the reason for saying that is that he goes one step beneath the priestly role of dignity to the higher role of dignity, namely the sonship of Jesus Christ, which if he has, if he has this dignity, how much more is he suited to assume the role of the priestly dignity? And I think this word begotten means two things biblically. And I think in the book of Hebrews, judging from chapter one, he has from all eternity begotten the son. There never was a time when the son and the father did not exist. But the father has always been the one generating the son, imaging him forth, beholding himself perfect, perfectly reflected back in the image of his son. And that's called the eternal begetting of the son. But when he was raised from the dead, he was declared, as Romans 1 says in Acts 13.33, he was proclaimed son of God in power. So he's always been the son, but as he moved through the testing, he became son of God in power, fit in a new way to assume his role as high priest's son after he died and rose again. So I think the point here in verses four and five is that the dignity of the priestly office is satisfied because Jesus is the son of God. All hell is going to break loose on you one of these days. Near your death, if not sooner, Satan, your own unmortified flesh that remains, and the world around you in some ways are going to conspire, and they are going to assault you with this word. Your salvation is bogus. It's not eternal. You think the death of Jesus, a man, is sufficient to cover all the crap you have done with your life? Your sin is still on you. And therefore, your guilt is still on you. And therefore, your condemnation is still on you. And therefore, the wrath of God rests on you. And soon you will enter the judgment and he will frown and say, out of here, you sinner. And you'll join me in hell. And that's the assault that will come. And it will come with a vengeance. And I only know one solution to that warfare. And that is the sword of the Spirit. The word and truth of God. And this truth is one dagger in that sheath. Namely, oh no, Satan. Oh no. It was the Son who died. It was the Son of God who died. My high priest is not of the tribe of Aaron. My high priest is not of the tribe of Levi. My high priest is the Son of God. And it is sufficient. His dignity is infinite. It's infinite. And you back off and get out of here because I know that my Redeemer lives and I shall stand before Him and be accepted on the basis of this death which is invested with saving eternality because 
The Son has dignity. Second word, eternity. Christ has eternity in the order of Melchizedek, verse 7, just as he says also in another passage, namely Psalm 110, verse 4, Thou art a priest forever, key word, forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Now, in chapter 7 of Hebrews, Melchizedek comes in for extensive treatment. So I'm going to save details for chapter 7 and give you a little two-minute summary of Melchizedek here and who in the world this fellow is and why he becomes so important. This is amazing. This is amazing. You know how many times Melchizedek is referred to in the Old Testament? Twice. Genesis 14, 18. Abraham is coming back from the defeat of the kings. He's near Sodom. And here comes out of nowhere Melchizedek, king of righteousness, Melchizedek, king of righteousness. And he blesses Abraham, and Abraham pays him tithes, and the text says simply, he was priest of God Most High. And he's gone for a thousand years. You don't hear from him again or about him. And then one more time in the whole Old Testament, boom, there he is again. Psalm 110, verse 4, and never again. And what you see in Psalm 110, verse 4, is David quoting God, saying about the Messiah, he is a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, the next time you hear of him is the book of Hebrews. Boom, right here. And that's it. Nobody else in the New Testament refers to him and nowhere else in the Old Testament. That's amazing. And what it shows is that this writer of the book of Hebrews is a lover and a believer in the detailed inspiration of the Old Testament. Because he looks at that and he says, Melchizedek, coming out of nowhere, blessing Abraham, receiving tithes, poof, he vanishes out. And then, and then David saying that the Messiah will be a priest, not according to the Aaronic or the Levitical line, but the Melchizedek order. What is that? The order of Melchizedek. He just was there for a verse and he's gone. And he thinks and he ponders and this is what he concludes. Melchizedek is symbolically a pointer toward a priesthood that will be outside Aaron and outside Levi and outside the law of a wholly different nature. And then he ponders, well, what kind of pointers might there be? Well, he just appears and we don't know who his parents were. and We don't know who his lineage was and Poof, he's gone. We don't know where he went. And so there, it appears like there was no beginning and there's no ending. And that's exactly what he says in chapter 7, verse 3. Christ realizes what Melchizedek symbolizes. Namely, he is without beginning and without ending. And he gathers all of that up out of what David did under the inspiration of God with this image or this person back here 
in Genesis 14. So the point here, let's just take one piece of it. We'll do more in chapter 7. The point here is the order of Melchizedek simply means an eternal order. No beginning, no ending. The priests of Aaron, they died. All the priests of the Old Testament leading up to Jesus lived and died, lived and died. And now you have Jesus who is eternal in the order of Melchizedek. Why does this matter? I'll I'll put it this way. Do you want to be an oak tree saint or a cattail saint? I have very clear images in my mind of a particular oak tree and a particular group of cattails. When I taught at Bethel, I would drive across E2 for six years, take a right on Old Snelling, and there on the left is this marsh, and there's these cattails. I remember them because the blackbirds would sit on top of them. These red-winged blackbirds like to sit on points of things. And... And they would kind of sway and wobble with the bird. And when the winds were blowing and the rains were coming, these were whipping back and forth. And they died every year and underneath that mess. And I wondered how many generations of cattails are lying there. Thousands of years of cattails. Mucky under that stuff at Lake Valentine. And I thought, that's, that's not the way I want to be. I don't want to be a cattail saint. Falling over in the wind and sinking down in the muck every year. Disappearing, having to be replaced. But in Georgia, where I work, and I've written about this, where I sit in a little study outside my mother-in-law's house, there's an oak tree. I mean, we're talking serious oak tree here. <laughs> I've walked up to this oak tree and put my arms around it like this. And I can't, I think maybe I'm a third of my span is six feet from tip to tip here. I put my arm around because I do it again. I figure it must be 15, 18 feet around. And about maybe eight feet up comes the first limb straight out. The limb is probably this big around. Takes 200 years to get a limb like that, not counting the tree. And it goes horizontal, flat with the earth, I don't know, 40, 50 feet straight out like that. And there's a swing hanging under it about 10 feet out. And I've often sat with Noel on that swing and thinking, if this limb breaks, we are jelly. <laughs> I want to be an oak tree. I just think of the winds that have beat on that thing for centuries. Beat it and beat it and beat it. And it just... Like rock. The little cattail Now, tell me what psalm in the Bible tells us how to become an oak tree. Which psalm is it? One. That's right. It says, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree. Not a cattail, a tree. So if you want to become an oak tree saint... You meditate on the law of the Lord, which is what this is. This is the writer to the Hebrews doing some of it for you and then offering it to you to do for yourself. He's meditating on Melchizedek. 
and he's meditating on the Messiah and the priestly order. And he's meditating on the sonship and he's meditating on the dignity and eternity of Jesus and how it relates to him becoming the source of eternal salvation. And he becomes strong. Don't be a cattail saint. Be an oak tree saint by meditating on the word of God. Which brings us finally to number three, the last one, purity. He becomes the source of eternal salvation because he has the purity of fiery testing. Now, some people ask this. I asked it. Does the dignity and the eternity of the Son of God mean that his purity was automatic? Well, of course he's going to be pure. He's the Son of God. Eternal Son of God, pure. Automatic. Now, this text is written to say a loud no to that. Look at verse 8, first of all. Although he was a son... And you see in the word although that he's saying something unexpected here. You would think that the son wouldn't have to learn obedience through suffering. And he says, oh, no. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Now, that does not mean he started as disobedient and he became obedient. It means he started as untested and he became proven all eternity the son has obeyed the father perfectly every will that the father has the son has every inclination every desire that the father has the son just resonates perfectly with it because they are one in a profound way but never until the incarnation did the son suffer one millisecond And when he clothes himself with humanity, it's for one main reason, that he might hurt and die. When it says he learned obedience, it means he learned what it was like to obey through pain, through temptation, through suffering. And the question is, was that automatic? Verse 7 Look at verse 7. It says he prayed and he begged and he cried out and he wept with tears. This was no fake test. All the universe hung on this test. And you ask, I ask, was it brief? Was the testing and the suffering and the crucible, the white hot Pain, brief. And the reason I ask that is because many interpreters take this verse 7 as a reference only to Gethsemane. Here he is, remember, in Gethsemane. He's sweating drops of blood. He's saying, oh God, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And they say, that's what we're hearing in verse 7. That's not quite right. And the reason it's not quite right is found in the word days. You see that plural word in the days, not night or day, but days in the days of his flesh. That means 
while he was incarnate. He wept and he cried and he prayed and he agonized. Jesus' whole life was one of wrestling with God. Now you ask, I ask, for what? When it says in verse 7 at the end that he's praying to the one who is able to save him from death, does that mean what he's crying for is to escape physical death? And that in the days of his flesh, all his daily life, he was praying not to die. Is that what that means? I find that really hard to believe. Because the Bible pictures Jesus with his, with his face set like flint. The Son of Man must go up to Jerusalem and there be rejected by the chief priests and the scribes and be spit upon and beaten. And they will crucify him and on the third day he will rise. He had set his face like flint. To die. For this reason the Son of Man came into the world, that he might give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus was not constantly saying, Oh God, don't let me do what you sent me to do. Rather, Jesus knew there was a death worse than death. Namely, sin. There would have been something infinitely worse than dying on the cross, and that is for the Son of God to sin, to be impure, to have one impure, lustful thought toward Mary Magdalene would end our salvation. That was what was at stake. That's what caused crying and agonizing and praying and tears and sweating Oh, my God, yes, my flesh does not like the thought of nails piercing and swords or thorns, but God, I fear sin. I fear not enduring to the end. I fear not being able to lay myself down as a pure and holy sacrifice. Spare me, save me. All the days of his life he prayed that, I believe. From the time Satan was tempting in the wilderness... Till he went away and prayed all night, day by day by day, the Son of Man was saying, This day, Lord, Almighty God, my Father, prevent me from making shipwreck of salvation by sinning and being an impure sheep. And God answered him. This is is one of my reasons for thinking this. Do you see that in verse 7? He was heard. I don't think that means God picked up on the wave. Oh, I hear a voice. I hear a voice. That's not what that means. That means he answered him. He answered him. Which means his prayer succeeded. Because his prayer was, Oh God, don't let me be impure. Don't let me sin. Don't let me ruin the cross. Don't let me ruin the plan of redemption. Save me. Keep me. Hold me. Don't let me sin. And day by day, just like with you and me, we need to fight it. And Jesus Christ, bless him, 
Oh, we should love him. He fought this thing every day and he won every day and he fought it right into the worst battle of Gethsemane. Yes, I hear Gethsemane here. Yes, I hear the blood dripping. And yes, I hear the, 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 the normal human flesh rising and saying, Oh God, if there were another way besides the cross, I hate the thought of the cross. I've seen them die on the cross. Sure. I, that, he said that. He said that. But beneath that, there was another prayer. And it was more important than that prayer. And it was, Oh God, when I stand before those people tomorrow, let me say, Father, forgive them. Because if I get angry, and if I give vent to sinful rage, there will be no salvation. And all your plan will abort. That's what He bought. Meditate, brothers and sisters, on the purity of Jesus. Meditate on His dignity, His eternity, and His purity, because of those three things, He has become for you the source of eternal salvation. Now let me close with this question. Are you saved? Verse 9 will tell you if you are. You see that? Having been made perfect, He became to all those who obey Him the source of eternal salvation. So I'll ask the question a different way. Not are you saved, but are you obeying Jesus? Or are you living in disobedience from him? If you are living in disobedience, you do not have warrant to believe that you have salvation. Now, obedience in the book of Hebrews is first and foremost obedience to the command to trust the promises of God. It is very interesting that in the first, I believe it is, nine chapters of this book, there's not one practical, ethical command. But there are many commands to believe to hope, to trust, to hold fast your confession, to draw near to God, to rest in His promises. So the first thing we must hear when it says obey is, will you obey this morning the command, trust me, have I not enough dignity? Have I not enough eternity? Have I not enough purity that when I lay down my life that you might have forgiveness and acceptance forever? You can trust me. That's the command to be obeyed first. Every other kind of obedience flows from that obedience. And so the bottom line question as we leave is, are you willing this morning, right now, to look at the promises of sin? You got them in your mind? Got some sins planned for this week? The only, the only reason anybody is sinning is because sin makes promises. Look at the promises of sin and say to them, you are a liar. And then look at the promises of God and say, you are true. And embrace these. Believe them. Trust them. Bank on them. 
Hold fast to them, as Hebrews says, and you will know that you have eternal salvation.